Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate. And joining me today are Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Welcome, Troy. Hi, Megan. And Katie Royfe, a Slate contributor and NYU professor and author of many books, including Still She Haunts Me. Welcome, Katie. Hi. Hi. Today we have the perhaps thorny but perhaps not thorny task of discussing Vladimir Nabokov's The Original of Laura, and I'll just note that we've been sitting here disagreeing about the pronunciation of Mr. N's name, which maybe we'll talk about later. Right. I'm sticking to Vladimir Nabokov. Vladimir Nabokov. Okay. Yeah. We, we think Russians might say it Nabokov, but then perhaps, but, but Troy has evidence that, Troy, maybe just tell your evidence, tell your evidence about why he, why you think it's Nabokov. Oh, in interviews, he says that the uh, Vladimir should rhyme with Redeemer, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think I'm remembering correctly a um, a poem that he gave to students at Wellesley, I think, um, to remember how to pronounce his name, uh, which is the querulous squawk of the heron at night prompts Nabokov to write. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but we welcome the. Uh, corrections of any listeners who think they know better than us. So we may have a a motley assortment of pronunciations here. But today we're discussing a posthumous novel, The Original of Laura, which was published this fall. It is subtitled Dying is Fun, or it's sort of parenthetically titled Dying is Fun, and it also has another little piece of apparatus on its cover that says A Novel in Fragments. And that's because it's a book that was published... Well, after his death, obviously, and it was published by Dmitry Nabokov, his son, who inherited the, the sort of dilemma of having a series of index cards on which this novel had been begun. Nabokov was writing the book shortly before his death. Um, we think he began writing it in 1975. He was writing it certainly in 1977 when he died. And what is left is just a series of index cards, some of them ordered, some of them not. When he died, he asked, he commanded his wife, Vera, to burn the novel. Because he had twice asked her to burn Lolita, uh, she did not burn this novel. And she obviously did not burn Lolita either. Well, that's a a little bit different. I I think that the story with Lolita is that he was frustrated with it, and he was, like, making his way towards uh, the incinerator in their yard in Ithaca. Yes. And she called him off. Yes. So it's definitely different. But nonetheless, she knew that he was, he tended toward wanting to destroy that which he right. was writing. Right. Sp- speaking of Lolita, should I use this as a segue to get the uh, commercial over with? Sure, please right. do. This is that commercial, dear listener, where uh, we ask you to listen for a moment uh, to hear about the wonderful work done by our sponsor, audible.com, which carries more than 50,000 audiobooks, which you can download right to the same device you have playing right now. As a special deal for book club listeners, if you sign up for a one book a month membership, you'll get a free book as a thank you. And so, for instance, uh, available on audio is Jeremy Irons' reading of Lolita, which is a classic audiobook and a fine way to spend 11 and a half hours. Or you can also download my favorite posthumous novel, Ernest Hemingway's Garden of Eden. 
Yeah, so that's the deal with audible.com. So to get that free book, go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. Now then, where were we? Well, thank you, Shrey. We are about to plunge into our discussion. So I'm curious. This this book has been met with um, very different responses, and, and as a posthumous novel, it raises all sorts of questions. What did you think? What did you make of this artifact that we have here before us, Troy? Well, I think it is. Artifact is a well-chosen word. This is much more an object. The book is an excellent art object, and much more an object than it is a novel. Uh, so designed by Chip Kidd, and we've got this big, handsome, heavy sort of box of a book here with, you know, there's the usual supplementary matter. There's an introduction and acknowledgments. And there are 138, I believe, index cards, which is, you know, the author's favorite method of composition was to write on cards with pencil. He would do his work every day and then give these cards to his wife, Vera, who would read them. If she had, if she thought things didn't work, they'd kind of chat about it at dinner, and then she'd ultimately type them up. So this manuscript never made it that far. 138 cards about. Well, and you can punch them out, which is one of the unusual features of this book. Yeah. They're actually perforated, so you can yes. punch out the index cards if you wanted to, and shuffle them. Shuffle them or, yourself. Right. But so the thing is so which pretty. Which also means How could that you... there's backs to there are blank pa- many blank pages, which commentators, I think um, John Lanchester in the New York Review of Books said there were more blank pages in this book than any book he Well, it looks read. enormous <laughs> and I think that the text I read somewhere is 9,000 words it's or something, something like that. So it's a very It's a very short text in a lot of book here. <laughs> but it, and, and sort of a beautiful cover yeah. with the kind of vanishing yes. print. Yeah. Um, so it is an object. Yeah. yeah. I definitely agree. It felt very much like an art object. I, I was really, I had read a lot about how the book had been produced and, you know, going, people going on about the blank pages, but actually that seemed very appropriate to me. But yeah, so Troy, what, what, what did you make of the text when you finally got to the text as text? Uh, I'd say that it's, it's crucial to bear in mind that this is not a novel in any meaningful sense of the word. It is notes toward a novel. And it must be regarded as such. You know, it's not just that the text is fragmentary. It's it's uh, very difficult to see in which way those fragments are pointing and how they'll add up. And there are a lot of very basic sort of misspellings here. It's, it's as if the uh, this is a draft, um, but it's not even, it's a, not draft even a draft because yeah. it's not clear. It's some, I think you're right. It's notes right. more than a draft. Yeah, because yeah. it's not clear that this is the form in which he would have chose even to present a first draft. Right. Right. Uh, so it it offers, there's not any kind of, uh, anything like conventional narrative satisfaction to be gotten here. Uh, there's sort of the the pleasure of seeing, uh, it's like watching one of your favorite old bands, uh, uh, listening to some sort of B-sides and outtakes. Like listening <laughs> to studio of, riffs or yes, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Or you're not even studio, like, um, right, band space screwing around, kind right. of playing. All right. So it's yeah. a bit... In as much as we're kind of like looking over his shoulder as he uh, is at work, it's it's a bit voyeuristic. Um, well, and there, and, it, and one does have the sense slightly. Um, there's a prurience to it of what were we intended to see it, which obviously the publisher is playing up. Um, the son plays up in his own way um, in in his. Rather tormented introduction, which in which I think we should point out, he writes exactly like his father. You know, yes. He writes this sort of stylistic echo, as if he himself is, you know, an Abokov character. But it's like an echo rather than exactly well, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, some sort of version. But yeah. but anyway, I, I think that um, there's also the sense of 
are we reading this book kind of against the will of the writer? There's that sort of ambiguity that makes its way into one's experience of it, I think. Yeah. yeah. I always, you know, I, I, I know that people get very involved with that question. And, and certainly um, a recent case I can think of this is um, when Elizabeth Bishop's unpublished poems edited by Alice Quinn came out a couple of years ago. And that was like this in the sense that there were many poems that were clearly notes toward something, the very approximate first searchings of a mind toward kind of a theme, a, a music, a sound. And um, a lot of people were very distressed by that, partly because she was such a perfectionist and a stylistic perfectionist in a way that I think we could say Nabokov was too. But um, but I found this totally fascinating. I, I think the only thing, and I was glad to be able to read it, and I didn't worry too. I, I kind of, perhaps selfishly, wasn't worrying too much about what he would feel about me reading it because this is the dilemma of the when you are not here anymore, your words suddenly do become part of the world in a way. And what I meant to say by that yeah. is that I think it adds drama yes. to the novel itself, Definitely. especially because. You know, they have subtitled it Dying is Fun. Right. And this is, in a way, a novel about dying. Definitely. And yeah. so this, I think that it's hard to separate out one's experience of this, this book or this text or these index cards from that question of there, there's sort of, there's a certain voyeuristic element to it that I think amps up the drama. Yeah, that seems true. I mean, it definitely is. I, I agree. The book seemed to me very much to be about dying. And, and one of the reviews I read, maybe it was John Lanchester's in the New York Review again, was talking about how Nabokov often wrote about death, but this is him really writing about dying. And one of the themes, and, and maybe we can sort of delve a little bit into what, what is there, is this idea, one of the kind of through lines is this idea of someone being in bed, imagining projecting himself onto a kind of chalkboard, drawing himself and then erasing himself. And there's this preoccupation with erasure, which obviously the presentation of the book with its erased name picks up on. That seemed to me just so haunting and so extraordinary. And actually the presentation of the book as these being able to see his handwriting and see the crossouts and see the fading and the, the whole presentation, again, added to that drama. Um, so I thought that kind of object it just became a meditation on partiality, on erasure, on also, also what art is as a way of trying to make things, like which is the opposite of erasure, in, inscription. So that right. was interesting to me. But yeah, Troy, what did you think about what's there? You know, what we do have here, which is not a novel. Um, what parts stayed with you or struck you? I think that the things that struck me most were probably just uh, sort of dislocated phrases that. Um, Give the uh, the good kind of exciting tingle of the spine that um, Nabokov's prose should, you know, and and you know, sort of. Well, I was about to say sadly, but that's maybe applying sentiment where it doesn't belong. But I can't state again how kind of underformed all this is. So that there's not a ton of material that uh, sort of elicits that familiar um, sort of stylistic tingle that his work traditionally does. So this is a book about sort of one woman who is two women and then there's a 24 year old adulteress named Flora who is the subject for a novel that's kind of within the novel called Laura one of her lovers has written a book about their affair and this is happening in the, sort of the same space that we are getting this narrative about um, the self erasure from her fat mad neurologist of a husband 
And so, I, don't, I mean, it's very difficult to talk about it because there's not right. a story. There's sort of a sketch. And it is interesting that not only does the, the sketch, the matter of erasure, sort of line up with the uh, the kind of circumstances of this book's sort of gestation and publication, but also with the author's uh, most – some of his richest returning themes about dying and death and erasure and destruction and creation. But also it's, you know, it's pretty interesting to read it in terms of the – as a lesson in reading Nabokov, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense at all. Mm-hmm. When you're talking before about – when you used the word meditation before, the I think that's exactly right. But the – the weird thing, what makes this a unique reading experience is that it's not the author's meditation that you're sharing in. It's the author's it's, – it's this raw material that's provides the opportunity for your own meditation on, right. on yeah. whatnot. Well, and it's also interesting because the form this dying man takes is he's the cuckold, you know, mm-hmm. and then his experience of – he's sort of being shut out of life altogether, partially on purpose, and part of the ambiguity here is that he's kind of retreating. He takes some kind of sensuous pleasure in this retreat, but he's also kind of being, you know, he has this wife who's going on living, younger wife, and he's just the cheated on husband. Who's um, disappearing. Who's disappearing. His flesh is becoming infected. And I think it's, it's yeah. interesting, um, one of the things that's sort of interesting is, um, as a comment on some of his previous work, or as it relates to his previous work, is it's much more sexually explicit than, um, you know, Lolita, for instance, which is not sexually explicit in quite this way. Except for that one scene early on. But yeah, it's not explicit. It's not it's explicit. It's very sexual, but it doesn't have the same kind of graphic There's sexual some explicit well, I, descriptions. I think as time went on, his got work more. got gradually... More. I mean, Ada, which so, Ada I have not more. finished, is... has more sexually explicit. It does, yeah. but yeah. I felt like this... Some of the scenes in here are pretty... Uh, they're less stylized. Maybe they're less controlled. They somehow it feels more pornographic to me. Yeah, it, and people have made a lot of that. I think that is true. That it, there, maybe it's also just that there's, um, in terms of a balance of material, there's a lot of material about sex here. And I did have this kind of meta vision of because one, I, I knew that he was sick when he was writing this. You do have this vision of an old man. They do feel like kind of the scraps of some, old, you know, an old man who's feeling his flesh kind of begin to disappear or begin to betray him, meditating on the themes that rise from that, one being self-erasure as opposed to making things and making art, the other being the kind of, you know, vigor and vitality of the young female body that the that the old man desires but does no, no longer has have. access yeah. to. And there's actually a line about that. The other thing that, that's, I think, kind of interesting and important about this is that Flora and Laura become in some ways not stand-ins for, but sort of they're conceived at an angle to Lolita, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there does seem to be stabs toward meditating on what it is to create a character who, and in Lolita and Humbert Humbert, who then everyone speculates wildly, is this, is this who Vladimir Nabokov is? Does he, is he a pedophile? Is he, you know, so, so Flora is sort of whoever the original of of Laura is, but she's also kind of the original of Lolita in a certain Mm way. And, um, and not, um, but there's one of the men she has an affair with when she's a young girl. She also has all this sort of sexual encounters when she's young, one of which is with a man named Hubert H. Hubert. So there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination with Lolita, and who knows if that would have stayed in, but I wondered what you made of that, whether that was interesting to you or cast light on. Uh, It was interesting. It 
casts some light. I'm not sure how clarifying the light is. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it goes towards both points to to say that you know the his last completed novel before this, Look at the Harlequins, it's sort of a, a fake autobiography, uh, sort of a refracted autobiography. There's a I think one of the one of the bits of front matter lists other books by this narrator, uh, and so the. The, the protagonist of that book is this kind of alternate self of Nabokov's, and that there's also a lot of a lot of sex in there too. Not all of it good. I think that there's mm-hmm. it's kind of a messy hand job on page four, and and I wonder, you know, the sexuality both in Harlequins and in this book, if it has to do with sort of an artist trying to uh, sort of like explore the sort of new license that's available to him to to kind of write about that stuff openly and frankly you know sort of Lolita it's the farthest thing from pornography you can think of but it it was instrumental in in kind of sort of colonizing a certain terrain for the respectable imagination right that's interesting because actually Updike says something in his review of Ada from The New Yorker where he talks about how that book is more sexually explicit because as he saw it that's exactly what Nabokov was trying to do he was trying to he said now he is free to push into a more sexually explicit terrain and Katie that comes back to what you were saying about how explicit this feels so part of it's just the time period, the historical yeah. period, yeah. Right. you know, that he's able to. Right. And I also think that partly he's interested in trying to find ways in setting himself the challenge of writing about sex in an interesting way. In um, I think there are letters and essays where he writes about his relationship with Maurice Girodius, who um, like originally published Lolita in France. And who who was largely a pornographer and in he published Henry Miller too is that right yes uh, yeah which maybe yeah. goes toward yeah. my point yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that's what i'm <laughs> um, <laughs> thinking about that bridge between pornography and literature yeah, yeah. but um in writing about Rodis, nabokov writes about pornography in a way that suggests his he objects to it generally but not on moral but aesthetic grounds <laughs> uh, the <laughs> fact that i don't that it's it's that sex is so often written about badly and there's a bit on one of these cards that points in the in the same direction. Where are we? um, if we start on like page twenty one here, we're talking about Flora. Only by identifying her with an unwritten, half written, rewritten, difficult book could one hope to render at last what contemporary descriptions of intercourse so seldom convey, because newborn and that thus generalized, in the sense of primitive organisms of art as opposed to the personal achievement of great English poets dealing with an evening in the country, a bit of sky in the river, the nostalgia of remote things, things utterly beyond the reach of Homer or Horace. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, except it does, and, you know, I'm not least not sure what to make of it because there's too little material around it to tell me what to make of it. But it does maybe suggest some sort of self-awareness about these difficulties in writing about sex or or something like that. Katie? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, much of the... the um, obviously, the sexual descriptions are extremely stylized, extremely comic most of the time, and you know, very Nabokovian. I mean, they aren't... It's sort of all feels like reference and joke and all of that, you know, in a way, I think. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of... Some of this reads a little like almost as if he's writing parody of himself. 
um, sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah. and Harlequins, again, is... Is another example where he sort of is, too. And often, obviously, a lot of the... A lot of what he was interested in, even if you think back to like real life of Sebastian Knight, he, he's interested in the idea of creating this sort of parody, you know, and this shadow being, you know, all this. But it does, you can really feel that here in a kind of direct and raw way, I think. Right. This sort of sense of inhabiting his persona in a certain way. It definitely. It, it feels like it goes in two really interesting, and I, I was wondering whether they would ultimately have been direction, sort of opposed directions, one of which is that parodic, intense kind of overhandling of the language almost, mm-hmm. an overhandling of the physical language in a way that makes you at first uncomfortable and then laugh, a lo- you know, and, and clearly he's in on that. And there's something very kind of, there's just an incredible sense of style there at work and a sense of the sensual detail. It's funny, you know, Updike's, uh, the other direction being, though, this slightly more metaphysical, existential, philosophical direction um, that's also carried to a kind of extreme. It's present in his work before, but here feels like it's going to this a further extreme. And again, it's hard to know if that's just because we're experiencing it on these interrupted fragments of cards that there's it's not kind of integrated into story and I, I'll read one one example of this this is about the self erasure he talks a lot about there's sort of cards that talk about just have words like willpower on them and auto dissolution and failure but there's a lot of, con- of concern with self obliteration and actually, the very last um, note in this book is a series of synonyms for erasure, which reads, efface, expunge, erase, delete, rub out, then there's something rubbed out, wipe out, obliterate, which clearly Dimitri figured would be the right ending for this book that doesn't quite exist and does seem to be. But the passage I was going to read um, is on page 181, and this is very different from the more sexualized passages, it seems to me. It goes, in this very special self-hypnotic state, there can be no question of getting out of touch with oneself and floating into a normal sleep, unless you are very tired at the start. To break the trance, all you do is to restore in every chalk-bright details the simple picture of yourself, a stylized skeleton, on your mental blackboard. One should remember, however, that the divine delight in destroying, say, one's breastbone should not be indulged in. Enjoy the destruction, but do not linger over your own ruins, lest you develop an incurable illness or die before you are ready to die. You know, that feels almost kind of like Kafka or Borges or something. Like There's almost like a metafiction in there about creation. It, you know, so I was very struck by struck by those moments in the in the book. Yeah, and your uh, bringing this up made me wonder just now. And I'm about three percent serious when I say this. It's it, it's worth entertaining the notion that this is actually what the book is supposed to look, look like. Look like right. I don't actually believe that, but it's fun right. to think about. And why not? Yeah. Why shouldn't? Uh, right, because it would be a great kind of trick. Of, right. But that's of, what I mean when it seems like a perfect object, because in a way it is like. This is what happens in a life and in an artist's life. They come to the end and they don't necessarily get to complete the thing. And so this is, in a way, it is the, the thing itself. Right? I mean, this is I'm getting hopelessly abstract. I don't know. There's just something very fitting to me about this novel. Right. It's, it's, you're getting at what I mean when right. you say, like, to entertain the notion that right. this is, in fact, the novel. Or is this, or is that just a well, dingbat notion is, that only well, a Charles Kimbo had? When you think about right. Nabokov's lectures on literature and how 
a lot of one of his central beliefs and philosophies within those lectures is the idea that the the work of fiction has its own life. Right independent of the author and he was so convinced of that that he actually has one he does things like map out the Sampsa's apartment and right. what it looks like right. and right. then he also says at one point um, and I, I, he says actually it wasn't a cockroach it was a beetle and he had wings under his shell which Kafka didn't even know because <laughs> Kafka didn't know enough about bugs right. now that whole idea that he knew better than Kafka what was inside this, this imaginative creature and creation has to do with the sheer respect he gives to the fictional or imaginative right. universe. And so if one were to treat this work with that same eye, um, then you would look at it as if this is how it is supposed to be. And this is, you know, this sort of idea of this this kind of precariously pieced together fragment is itself the form. Mm-hmm. But I can't, I guess I, I don't totally believe that it right. was deliberate. Right. And I also, I guess I, what Sort of my feeling coming out of the book was I wish that I ha- could read the com- the, the real the version, version, right? This. this sort of finished, yeah. polished version. Yeah, which is in a way I think how this is a success. I mean, it would be possible to read this and just think there's no sense of what it w- is going to be. But I think we do see the stirrings toward something. And Katie, what you're saying makes me think, you know, right? That you know he did have this idea of the force that was the force that made novels, and he described that as a force that was kind of outside of himself and almost like. A kind of spiritual force or something like this. And it does, to me, the book, I guess what I was trying to say before that it sort of is what it is, is that the to me, what we have here sort of demonstrates that there is this force, that it's clear he doesn't yet know quite what he's doing. There's not a sense of deep control, and yet there is a sense of something that will be ultimately a novel emerging. Or at least I felt that way. I didn't feel that this was just the you know scraps of a man who was kind of biding his time waiting to die. It did feel like this would be eventually a novel. And there's one detail in one of the Updike essays where I think he talks about one of the novels, finished novels, being either 1,000 or 10,000 note cards. And here we have 138 or so, which gives us a sense of the distance that might have been traversed before this became a finished book. But um, what other were there other moments or things about it that particularly struck you? Um, the I guess you'd call her the title character, the Laura or Flora or Flora is um, uh, she's memorable and, and and sort of you know necessarily we we have you know only kind of a, a bare quick sketch of her, but but she's um, sort of cruel and nasty and unlikable and alluring and. You know, a bit of something of a like a. Could you be a man eater? A man eater out of a bodice ripper. She's a little Proustian. Yeah, she's sort of yeah, a, yeah, like she's... Odette Albertine, or like of... those girls who are having the kind of masochistic lesbian affair in the old town. They're, she's a little like that. She's a little like Molly Bloom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She has all that kind of cruel indifference. She seems to have no kind of anxiety. Um, and to be all yeah, but Mo- Molly Bloom is there's a lot of uh, Laura doesn't or Flora rather or both maybe uh, doesn't have that kind of warmth that that's true that, she doesn't yeah. have the, that yeah. vitality exactly no she's it's a just, bit of a female cipher sort of all body yeah and laughter 
Let me ask a different question, which is, so in in one of the Updike essays that Troy, you kindly lent us some of your Updike collections, and one of the many essays he wrote for The New Yorker about Nabokov, he sort of addresses the old idea that Nabokov is essentially a brainy writer without heart. And in his view, that's a that's a you know a kind of misreading of of um, Nabokov's work. But I wonder, what do you make of that um, kind of age old criticism? And and what is your maybe we pull back for a moment to talk more broadly about Nabokov's other books. I know Troy, you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. I, I'm essential. I I think I've read. I've read all this stuff. I mean, I don't read Russian, so I don't have that. And I'm not, not going to read. I haven't read his translations. And I've never managed to finish Ada, to finish Ada but I've read all the novels and the plays and the poems and, and so forth. I'm a, and so I don't know if, having said that, I feel need to, to add further that I, I think he's hands down the, the greatest English language novelist of the 20th century with Virginia Woolf and Sol Bellow and... Uh, James Joyce and maybe William Faulkner following at some distance uh, and that this is a matter not only of his style and his extreme freakish verbal facility but also of uh, tenderness is an important uh, concept in his books and uh, a quality thereof. The, the notion of tenderness crops up a couple times here. Yeah. You know, once in, just in terms of uh, a description of Flora's wrist and somewhere else that maybe I'll uh, be able to flip around to before this um, recording is over. But, you know, tenderness meaning uh, sort of imaginative sympathy. Um, imaginative sympathy, I, I think, is... Well, and I think in this particular fragment, that's on display yeah. more yeah. more than in um, a lot Some of the of other the books. books. Yeah. yeah, talk say more about that, Katie. I'm curious because well, I felt I feel, that way too. I feel like that. I did feel like you know, as you did, the part about there was something in the disappearing and the vanishing and the that auto dissolution and all that. The whole part about his feet, which are causing him all this pain, and yeah, um, there's and he has this that, weird like passage about like actually trimming the flesh under the nail and being yeah. afraid, not wanting to ask anyone else to give him a pedicure. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, this this as a hospital novel, if you read it as a, both mm. something he wrote, you know, in the, in the hospital, hospital, but also as a, as a novel in a way about somebody confronting their own demise in whatever way. Yeah. Um, it is, it, this is one of the, the, the novels of his, if we call it a novel, um, in which one feels that in its least mediated form. Um, and I think, you know, I agree with you. I think that he captures something about, I mean, he obviously is more than just a brain or he wouldn't be able to write books that involve us the way his books involve us. You know, and he captures, even if, it, whether it's like the symbiotic relationship between the biographer and the subject or, you know, all these nuances and subtleties of people's obsessions, obviously obsession being one of his big subjects. Um, but I, I think in this one, there's something about the, the unfinishedness in which you kind of feel, and maybe this is the value of it, you know, you do feel the creation of this, you know, what would be this dazzling novel were it to exist. It's true. I mean, there is something, I think the fragments help help you see it. I mean, it also feels like there are places where he's setting you up to ultimately feel something about the characters that we don't then end up getting to. Like, there's clearly something between Flora and Philip, her obese lover, that we're going to learn more and more about that relationship, one presumes, if 
you know, if the book were going to go on. But there was one moment that really struck me, which is um, Flora uh, is sitting somewhere, I can't remember where, and one of her friends comes by and she's got the original, she's got Laura, the book, and she says, oh, you should see what he's done to you. You should see what, she sort of goes on about seeing the fictionalized self. And she's like, you should read your death. It's hilarious. Um, and it's mm. this great kind of, it's such a great scene. It is a great it's scene. Because you just suddenly see, like, he's so attuned to the ways in which just the, our brains kind of respond to sensationalism and, you know, how people are, you know, he's so attuned to what happened to his own characters and what happened to himself. But he's writing about it from Flora's perspective, but in this very funny, ironic way that doesn't, it's not dismissing this girl's hilar- you know, sense of the hilariousness of the death because she's kind of right in a way too and you think right, and in that moment I found myself thinking right what would it be to be the original of Lolita and then read your death in that book which was kind of over the top in a certain way and there's a way in which that, that moment particularly refers back to Lolita I thought but I, I, I don't know that was for me one of the really standout moments in this assortment of cards that we have I think one of the things about this, to me, again, this introduction by Dimitri is one of the, another, like, fascinating artifact. And to me, it did have, like, a pale fire quality to it, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, because if we were something about, just something about how this production of this incredibly beautiful book, um, in which there's sort of the text and then the kind of, like, all the, you know, discussion of the text is itself so much a construction or could have come out of the imagination of this particular writer. And that his son sort of inhabits him in this very strange way. I don't know. I found the whole thing. There's a creepiness in that introduction that I just, I, I felt like was so perfect for this particular writer. So, Katie, would you mind reading something from that introduction? As a tepid spring settled on Lakeside, Switzerland in 1977, I was called from abroad to my father's bedside in a Lausanne clinic. During recovery from what is considered a banal operation, he had apparently been infected with a hospital bacillus that severely lessened his resistance. Such obvious signals of deterioration as dramatically reduced sodium and potassium levels had been totally ignored. It was high time to intervene if he was to be kept alive. Thanks. And I think the last section where he talks about... Um, oh, yeah. Um, some of that too. Nor have I said, do I think that my father or my father's shade would have opposed the release of Laura once Laura had survived the hum of this t- of time this long, a survival to which I may have contributed, motivated not by playfulness or calculation, but by an other force I could not resist. Should I be damned or thanked? But why, Mr. Nibakov, did you really decide to publish Laura? Well, I'm a nice guy, and having noticed that the people the world over find themselves on a first-name basis with me as they empathize with Dimitri's dilemma, I felt it would be kind to alleviate their sufferings. <laughs> That's the end of the introduction, which is totally hilarious. Um, um, perhaps unintentionally and perhaps intentionally. I, don't, I, I think it's uh, self-aware about its yes. smugness. <laughs> yes, I do think that. Yeah, this is this is an odd and interesting performance. I... And Dimitri does uh, write very much like his father. It's, it's a bit hairier, um, the, the, the well, style somehow. Well, and he but uses his, the whole idea of the shade, and he uses, he yeah. sort of picks up. The other force that right, force. He's picking up and inhabiting him in some way. But even like the banal operation instead mm-hmm. of a simple operation or basilus. You know, there is this kind of, you know, the basilus instead of another word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. I don't know. It, that works well enough for me. Oh, uh, no, no, it, no. It, I, I like it, but I'm yeah. saying it is, a, it is, a, it is an act. It is a style. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it does, you know, he mentions at uh, at least two points in the introduction. He sort of compares the um, 
kind of the decision to publish these cards with um, his mother's um, kind of rescuing of the Lolita manuscript, right. um, which I, I think that's a false parallel. False parallel. Yeah. Um, and that's a good point. Kind of suggests that it's yeah. kind of reaching a bit to to justify the right. um, the decision to publish this. Um, I will also point out that Dmitry Nabokov is, by all indications, and like a fascinating dude in himself. Who's at points worked as as a race car driver and as an opera singer, um, and that he he did collaborate with his uh, father while he was alive on translations and that sort right. of thing. He translated some of the books from the Russian, right? Yeah. I don't really understand this idea that time would make such a big difference. Like now that they've survived this hum of time, given that we're talking about a writer with a sort of, you know, immortal reputation. Right. I mean, we're not talking about a writer who's just going to be known the decade after he's died. And so I'm not sure that the time... Kind of letting himself off the hook by being yeah, like, time has gone So much by, time so has now. passed, it doesn't matter. But, Obviously, Nabokov right. was thinking about his rep- his legacy and his right. reputation, not, you know... The only, the only thing I could come up with was that because his mother hadn't destroyed it in a way that had made the... Dis- that forces his hand almost. Now he has them and they've survived. They survived his mother and his mother's death and now they're in his possession. They're still there, so... But it is. It's funny. It's like, well, they're still here, so might as well go ahead. <laughs> Um, it is a funny. It is a funny introduction. I think it prepares us to read the book as um, use the phrase hospital novel, Katie. And I was definitely kind of envisioning it as a hospital novel too at points, and partly because um, the, the introduction prepared me to read it that way. Um, Dimitri talks about his father being, you know, in a, in and out of the hospital. Um, he starts with the hospital scene in 1977, and then kind of flashes back to a fall that his father had in 1975, and says, you know, the two things aren't connected, but it seemed like he started to ail that day, and you do get this picture of someone just basically not well for, for about two and a half years working on this working on this text. Which I, I, I did wonder, what would it be like to read this without that? Because because there's so many ellipses in this in this ser- sort of I, it's hard to even call it a text. It's almost like a series of texts that might end up together. The introduction really influences how we read the book, and I did think that this was an introduction that really led us to focus on the sense of someone in decline and what that someone might produce. Which one can't help but think would not be the way Nabokov himself would want whatever this was read. I, I kind of agree. Because yeah. it is that particular yeah. kind of facile biographical yeah. connection that he himself resisted and obviously critiqued in and Freudian critics and kind of you know, parodied over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, that's, that's part of the, stra- the strangeness of the setup and the kind of as I say, the sort of pale fire echo here. No, definitely. And and actually, even some of the hospital stuff, the, what I would, what, what we might call the hospital stuff, feels like also the exercise of someone kind of distancing himself from the bodily predicament, like as an artist distancing themselves from the biographical situation they happen to be in that ultimately mm-hmm. would have been transformed in some way, shape, or form to something quite other. And as you're saying, I mean, he would, he critiqued this himself. And in this book, there's that critique of the biographical reading mm-hmm. happening with sort of Laura novel embedded right. next to the story of Flora. So it's sort of funny that this the, the book itself comes armed with the apparatus that led me at least to read it very autobi- right. very biographically. Right. And obviously <laughs> intentionally so and if he hadn't included that introduction just from like a marketing point of view you don't really have a book because right. we have pr- a pretty incoherent I mean as you say there's no like narrative drive here. And so part of what gives it, what turns it into the book is the chemical interaction between that introduction and the note cards. 
It's well put. Yeah, that's definitely true. I was going to say, I, I have here in my hands, um, I, I picked this up yesterday, Michael Wood. Oh, I've it's this remarkable book-length performance of criticism uh, called Magician's Doubt, Nabokov and the Risk of Fiction, uh, which, you know, the first proper chapter in, in this is titled uh, Deaths of the Author. Um, and, you know, it, uh, it toys around with a lot of, I mean, it seriously toys around uh, with, you know, notions of uh, how the author is kind of like erasing himself uh, as a person in order to write the story of his characters, if I'm being clear. And so, you know, I'd, I would love to see a, a future edition of the original Vlora with, with some kind of a critical apparatus of this ilk at its um, tail end. What I'm squirreling around trying to say is that you know, all the points that we've been making um, seem all the more true, uh, you know, sort of given how we as readers and every reader as a critic um, kind of approaches the existence of the the man who is or is not behind the curtain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should bring this to a close, but I did want to, there were a couple of passages that I just love that I've been trying to find and I can't find, but one of my favorites that seemed very Nabokovian was um, a description of Flora's marriage to Philip Wilde, which sort of sums up their differences by saying they tr- she sort of I'm going to try to look for the passage, but does anyone remember this? It's she imagined their travels would be, you know, kind of an endless stretch of kind of sand, sandy beaches, and he envisioned he oh, yeah. remembered them chiefly for their forbidden foods and, and something, ex- something great expenses, great expenses, and yeah. it was just like one of those great. It was great. I remember it too. Fabulous language, kind of arch, but it's, uh, touching. Page one. It's on uh, page one fifteen. Page one fifteen. I thought maybe yeah. We, oh yes, maybe I'll just read this. So. It's um, they've just been traveling. Um, he's very wealthy, so this is one of the reasons she's married him, though she, though he's older and um, and quite corpulent. But she, he turns out to be a domestic miser, which is which he finds upsetting. But so it describes our travels on page one thirteen. We have Riviera had no swimming pool and only one bathroom. When she started to change all that, he would emit a kind of mild creak or squeak, and his brown eyes brimmed with sudden tears. That's such a great detail. And then the next page. She saw their travels in terms of adverts on a long talcum white beach with the tropical breeze tossing the palms in her hair. He saw it in terms of forbidden foods, frittered away time, and ghastly expenses. I just thought that was so fabulous. And, and there's such, there is, again, that tenderness in it, in the kind of, you know, the brown eyes brimming with tears. You know, that he's a miser, but he's, it hurts him. Like, and, and Nabokov is able to kind of see the pain that, you know, he actually feels when, when Flora is sort of lavishing money on renovating the houses. Um, so there are a lot of little moments like that. I don't know if there are any others you want to share, but I thought maybe we could also end by just talking about um, each of us. Well, Troy and Kitty, what are your favorite other novels of his? What would you point our listeners to if they haven't read it already? Well, obviously Lolita. Yeah. I love Pale Fire. Yeah. And I also like Real Life of Sebastian Knight, maybe of the less known ones. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big Panine fan. Oh, I do. I love it, too. I have a copy of it right here, which I brought in with the... um, Intention of reading. I've got a uh, an underdeveloped notion that um, there's a passage here that's right in the middle of the book. It's in the in the fifth of nine sections in the fourth of seven chapters. Uh, that's the the key, not just to the to the structure of this particular book. A lovely, beautiful campus novel about this little Russian professor in uh, 
teaching college in upstate New York. It's a key not just to the book, but to the author's kind of ideas about spirituality and the way things work in the universe. It's sort of tucked away in a passage about the teachings of um, uh, a painter, this kind of uh, eccentric freak genius of a of a painter who teaches at a boys' boarding school. Would you? You're using the vintage book, so would you just mention the page number since that's yeah. a common edition that it's, people might uh, have? It's on page 96, and so. Well endowed with the morose temper of genius, he lacked originality and was aware of that lack. His own paintings always seemed beautifully clever imitations, although one could never quite tell whose manner he mimicked. And on and on, uh, we go into his teachings uh, and read. Among the many exhilarating things Lake taught was that the order of the solar spectrum is not a closed circle, but a spiral of tints from cadmium red and oranges through a strontian yellow and a pale paradisal green to cobalt blues and violets, at which point the sequence does not grade into red again, but passes into another spiral, which starts with a kind of lavender gray and goes on to Cinderella shades transcending human perception. Mm. Which is just lovely. Uh, And in its um, kind of vision of that helix... I think points strongly towards what Nabokov might think about sort of the afterlife and what's happening on other planes of existence. Hmm. Well, and to bring us back just to novels for a moment from the afterlife, it also reminds me of um, one of my favorite details from the various Updike pieces is um, he talks about, I guess, one of Updike's wives studied with Nabokov at Wellesley and said that he would, in the middle of the lectures on great European novels, he would tell them, caress the details, and he would roll his R's, probably much more differently than, much differently than I just did, but he, that was his sort of refrain to them, caress the details, caress the details. And certainly in that passage, he's caressing the details. The list of colors is great. One of my favorite um, details from those lectures is this scene is the part where he talks about how to some of them he says this to his like audience of students some of your ears may be purely ornamental. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I Uh, hope our listeners' ears are not purely ornamental, and I want to thank you guys both for joining me today, and uh, to our listeners for joining us for this Nabokov edition. We will be returning soon with a discussion of Mary Carr's new memoir, Lit, and perhaps a discussion of memoirs more generally. So tune in next time. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke.